0: Chat Live, a fairly regular podcast series brought to you by the St. Catharines Museum and Welland Canal Center. We're bringing you all things to do with St. Catharines, our history, and what's going on in our museum. Today, you're listening to, well, me. My name is Sarah Nixon, public programmer at the St. Catharines Museum. I would like to begin by saying that we are recording today's podcast at the St. Catharines Museum and Welland Canal Center, and that we honor and acknowledge that this land is part of the traditional territory of the neutrals, Haudenosaunee, and Anishinaabe peoples and their allies, and is adjacent to the Six Nations of the Grand River. This is the fifth part in a series of podcast episodes detailing the fallen workers of the Welland Canal. Over the course of this mini-series, I have had the wonderful honor to speak with Des Corin, a longtime volunteer with the St. Catharines Museum and avid fallen workers researcher about topics and issues regarding the fallen workers of the Welland Canal. In this series, we explore the lives and deaths of the fallen workers to honor them but also in an attempt to more fully understand the multifaceted circumstances that led to these 137 tragedies. What large stories can we tell about how society worked then? What insights can we gather on issues of class, labor, ethnicity, or language in St. Catharines at this particular moment in time? So far, Des and I have explored stories ranging from those that highlight the dangerous working conditions on the canal, to the particular challenges faced by immigrant workers, to the experiences of First World War veterans. I encourage you to visit our blog or to find us on iTunes or SoundCloud to listen to previous episodes in Museum Chat Live's Fallen Workers mini-series. Today our approach is a bit different. In this episode, we share a bit about crime and unlawful behavior as it connects to the construction of the Welland Canal and its workers. We share not just stories of the fallen workers, but of the men who came to work on the canal more generally. Each of them came to the canal with their own stories and backgrounds and reasons for working there. Workers' history is nuanced. It's multi-layered and it starts with the workers themselves. So, by acknowledging and sharing even the less honorable stories connected to the construction of the Welland Canal, we hope to glean further insight into the workings of St. Catharines and Canadian society at this time, maybe insight we could not have otherwise. This episode was produced using primary source material as well as the Fallen Workers series published by the St. Catharines Standard and Niagara Falls Review. Let's begin with the story of Andrew Harkness of Belfast. This is a story that has many twists and turns. Andrew was born in Belfast in 1889. Though there's not much written of his family, we know he married a woman named Edith Irvine in 1920, and he worked as a blacksmith. He eventually opened his own blacksmith shop where he was able to employ an assistant. Belfast at the time was at the center of the troubles in Northern Ireland. In fact, his oldest brother, James, was the victim of a shooting in March 1992. He was out shopping with his wife when he was shot in the abdomen. He died the following day from his wound. James was but one of five incidents that day that involved a bombing and shootings of civilians and a soldier. His brother's murder was only the beginning of Andrew's perils. The Northern Whig and Belfast Post described a bankruptcy case in the March 25, 1925 paper in which a warrant for the arrest was issued for Andrew Harkness. The newspaper reported that the bankrupt's wife had not seen her husband since March twelfth. She also reported that her husband had gone away on a previous occasion but that she had not had any knowledge of her husband's financial difficulties. Notwithstanding his legal troubles, Harkness had already fled the country and had sailed for Canada aboard the Saturina on March 14, 1925. Harkness took up residence in Canada and by early 1928 was living in Welland. He found work on the Welland Ship Canal construction and, after just five weeks on the job, died tragically after accidentally falling into a sinkhole. What follows is an article published in the Larne Times, a newspaper in Northern Ireland, detailing the circumstances of Andrew Harkness's death.
1: Larne Times, March 17, 1928. Ulsterman drowned. Tragedy in Canadian Tunnel. News has been received of the death at Welland, Ontario, of Mr. Andrew Harkness, formerly of Gertrude Street, Belfast, and whose wife and family at present reside at 27 Mark Street, Newtonards. The late Mr. Harkness, who was a farrier by trade, went to Canada four years ago. He had, for about six weeks, been employed at the Welland Ship Canal, and was at his work on the morning of the 17th of February, when the attack happened. It appears that he was traversing a lock tunnel, and in the darkness failed to notice a waterhole which was 25 feet deep. He was not missed for about half an hour, and was dead when he was taken from the water. He was for 11 years a member of the Crossel Masonic Lodge, 132, which meets at Newtonards Road, Belfast, and there was a large attendance of the Welland Brethren at the funeral, which took place under Masonic rites on the 20th of February. Merritt and Cope Stone Lodges were represented.
0: Des, to begin, could you talk a bit about what we know about Harkness's life here in Niagara?
2: William Harkness, we already noted, was born in 1889. He came here 1825. Uh, He was, by trade, an iron worker, although he's listed as a bolt man. We know that he worked for the Steel Gates Company as a member of a riveter team. It was a four-man group. The heater, he heated the rivet. The reamer was the man who drilled the holes where the rivet was going to go. The bolter took the rivet from the heater, put it in the hole made by the reamer, And then the riveter pounded the other end of it while the bolter held it in place, locking it together and making the seal. Now, right off the bat, you have to wonder, why didn't they just weld? Well, if you look at the history of welding in 1920, that was when the American Welding Society was formed. We don't have any record of welding until the 1930s, and that was called stud welding. And it didn't really develop into arc welding until the 1950s, so to join two pieces of metal together to make a gate or any other metal object, it was done by riveting. And we know from Harkness's early days, uh, he was uh, a blacksmith tied to the ironworks, so working on, on the Welland Canal as a riveter totally made sense. If you want to just backtrack a little bit and look at, he was born in 1889. So that means in 1909, when construction began on the Titanic, which was in Harlan and Wolf and Belfast, he was alive and he was in that trade. We know that 15,000 men worked on the Titanic and the Olympic in that yard at that time. So it only makes sense that he worked originally on the Titanic. Uh, So therefore, when he comes to Canada, he fit perfectly into working for the Steel Gates Company. Uh, Andrew, of course, was a member of the Orange Order and the Masonic Order. As a matter of fact, when he did die here in Canada, he's buried in Woodlawn Cemetery in Welland, and that was where he had full Masonic Lodge participation. We know that the Orange Order began in 1795, and in Ireland at the time that he lived there, there was much tension, and uh, it it, uh, being a religious Catholic versus Protestant, Orange being totally the Protestant version of it, and the majority in Northern Ireland. uh, That was why that when he came to Canada, he was buried with, with honors by the Orange and the Masonic lodges.
0: The circumstances that led Harkness to Niagara and his eventual death were quite dramatic speaking of course of his bankruptcy issues. Are his experiences telling of how other men found themselves working on the canal as well?
2: Well, Andrew Harkness is really an unusual story on on many levels. He was a riveter. He worked for the Steel Gates Company. Yet and all, when you look at how he died, it had nothing to do with the construction of a gate. He died when he took a shortcut or perhaps he was concerned with the weather. He died February the 17th, the middle of winter, 1928. And he was working at lock two. He had to go from one end to the other. So rather than going outside, he used the chamber inside the lock wall. That's where there was a, a, a hole, which was 20 feet by 20 feet and 25 feet deep and filled with water. He obviously didn't see it, fell in. And one report said he drowned. Another said he died of of exposure. But the point is, he was a riveter working for a steel gates company, yet no, he drowned. Nothing to do with the trade whatsoever. Um, another irony and another, the man left Ireland to avoid uh, debt instead of going to jail. He comes to Canada, he gets drowned when he was really a steel worker. He, well, just, just a disaster all the way around.
0: Yeah, he might have been better off if he'd have stayed Stayed in Ireland.
2: (laughs) Before Andrew left Ireland, uh, there was what was called the Troubled Times, but that was not just a short period. That had been going on for many years. The original Irish uh, Covenant uh, took place whenever the country was preparing or was looking at being separated, and the North overwhelmingly voted to stay with Great Britain. And, of course, the rest uh, decided to go on their own. So in 1922, that was when this actual split took place, and the South became known as the Free State. The North became known as Northern Ireland. Uh, that was There was much trouble. Many people were murdered and killed through other means, and uh, that was just the, the atmosphere that Andrew Harkness... Not only did he, he escape his original... Uh, potential going to jail for debt, but he was also escaping the total turmoil of the, of the political situation at that time.
0: As I learned more about the experiences of the fallen workers and of the men who worked to construct the Welland Canal in general, I'm struck by the amount of hardship so many endured in their lives leading up to their work on the canal. One that stands out particularly to me is the story of Emmanuel or Manus Duggan. Des, can you tell us what you know of Manus Duggan? He was a breaker boy at one point in his life. What does that mean?
2: Well, a breaker boy was a young man, a a boy usually, who worked in a coal mine. They uh, sat on a, on a wooden board underground with the uh, trailings that have been dug out of the mine moving on a conveyor belt in front of them. Their job was to pull out the material that wasn't true coal, a lot of it being shale and sharp, o- sharp objects, which of course did serious damage to their hands. That's basically what a breaker boy did and uh, it was certainly not a very uh, lucrative job underground the air conditions not being the best and and the dangers of injuries to your hands
0: wow and just to back up a bit where was manis doing this work
2: uh pennsylvania
0: so he started in pennsylvania
2: mm-hmm. later he was convicted of larceny and spent two years in western Pennsylvania Penitentiary before arriving in Canada July 2, 1924.
0: So what you're saying then is Duggan came to Canada and came to work on the Welland Canal with a criminal record. Would there have been any screening or criminal record checks done before hiring?
2: If we go back in time, uh, there were no uh, restrictions as far as that. We we know today of crossing the border, the uh, protocol that has to be followed and and the legality of of coming into any country back in the day there was that did not exist not only for the government but also for the companies who hired these people so Manus came to canada without any anyone even being aware of his earlier conviction
0: Hmm, interesting upon a mission to the western penitentiary in pennsylvania Duggan's physical description was recorded to include scars and mashed fingers on his hand. This was possibly from his difficult days as a breaker boy. I also imagine that this would have affected his work on the Welland Canal. Des, what can you tell us about the fate of Manus Duggan?
2: Well, almost like Andrew Harkness, uh, Manus Duggan had, was in the wrong place at the wrong time. When he came here and started work on the 3rd of July, which was the day after he crossed the border, he uh, was listed as a laborer working at lock three, pouring cement into the wall. He was on a railroad derrick with a chute where the cement went into the wall. The chute became jammed. They were trying to take the chute off to unclog it whenever the Stability of the car came into question. There was actually three men on on the railroad car at the time. Two jumped off the safety, and Manis fell to his death right here at Lock 3.
0: my goodness. Manis Duggan did seem to have an incredibly difficult life. He came to Canada to work on the Mellon Canal construction in hopes of starting a new, more prosperous life. Andrew Harkness, too, found his way to the canal for a fresh start. Both made attempts to put their hardships behind them and the decision to leave the the lives they knew could not have been easy. I think especially of Andrew Harkness, who left his wife and four children. I often wonder, did he have regrets? Sadly, he would have never had closure or an opportunity to make peace with his family. They were still in Northern Ireland when he died on the canal. (coughs) In this episode, we'd like to explore a scandalous story where the scene of the crime was the Welland Canal. Though this story is not connected with the fallen workers, it does offer us a glimpse into the working conditions and culture of the canal. What follows is a reading of an article entitled, Stabbing a Fray on Ship Canal.
1: The St. Catharines Standard, March 1st, 1921 Stabbing a fray on the Ship Canal, two brothers in hospital at Homer as a result. While most people were peacefully sleeping this morning, a row took place in the deep cut near Lock 7 of the Welland Ship Canal at Thorold. The result is that Jingo Aguina is in the canal hospital at Homer, suffering from a serious wound in the left breast just below the heart. His brother Charles is in the same institution with a slight wound to the left side. The police are searching for Severio Metto, who is described as Italian, about 30 years of age, with a heavy mustache and of muscular stature. Very little is known of the incident which took place about 4 o'clock in the morning under the bridge at Peter Street. The three men were working on a drill, when apparently something took place which must have been disagreeable to Severio, with the result that he drew a knife and stabbed his two fellow countrymen. Dr. McMillan was called and dressed the injured men, after which they were removed to the construction hospital, where they received further care at the hands of Drs. McMillan and Benny. High Constable Richard Boyle was on the scene a short time after the stabbing, but was unable to find Meto who lives on Chapel Street, Thorold. The Thorold police are also involved. They were still scouting around today, but were unable to find any trace of him. The Aguina brothers live in Welland.
0: Des, from this article, it sounds like the attack on the Aguina brothers left them with serious injuries. Were there other incidents like this on the canal?
2: I'm sure there were many, just based on the numbers. When you consider about 2,000 men were working on the canal in 1919 and that grew to 4,000 later as construction intensified in 1928. I'm sure there were many altercations which were never made a police blotter because they were handled by the locals themselves.
0: The report said High Constable Boyle was on the scene. What was our police force like back then?
2: Well, we know that in... 1912, the St. Catharines Police Force got their first bicycle. In 1914, they got their first car. We have a great picture in the gallery showing the force as it was in 1928. Two cars, one motorcycle, three constables, four officers, and a chief. Now, if I let my mind wander to television today, I immediately conjure up Murdoch's mysteries. (laughs) Detective Murdoch, dashing to the scene on his bicycle, just like Constable Boyle would have been to track down the suspect. Unfortunately, Saverio Mito, the bad guy in this case, escaped, unlike what would have happened had it been TV detective Murdoch riding his bicycle to the scene.
0: <laughs> A little different than fiction, eh? <laughs> what do you think the story can tell us about the working culture of the Welland Canal?
2: I'm sure there were many fistfights on the Welland Canal during construction time. That, if they were to take place today, would result in an assault charge or some other, perhaps, serious ch- charge. Petty thefts were, I'm sure, commonplace, and they would would have been settled by the owners themselves, taken back their property. Only life-threatening incidents came to the attention of police forces. So, therefore, I'm positive there were many incidents that we will never know about.
0: That's a good point. I mean, you know, the canal at that time, there wasn't a lot of population or development here other than the construction. And the canal went how many... How many 27 kilometers? miles. 27 miles. That's a lot of territory for police forces to cover, right? So I'm sure a lot went on that was never actually reported to police. And
2: to add to that, we even have uh, duplication in a lot of cases, like for example, the Thorold h- had their own police force, as did St. Catharines, as did Welland, as did so there were many different police forces. So there was no coordination as we would know it today.
0: The stories we shared today are important. Though they might not portray fallen workers in their best light, they help us understand the complexities of the men who found themselves working on the Welland Canal construction with all sorts of pasts and experiences. Each had their own hopes, dreams, goals, fears, and anxieties. The canal saw men from all walks of life come together at one place at one time For a common goal guys do you have any last words
2: not only did they come together at one place at one time for a common goal but they came from foreign countries in this case italy ireland and usa their diverse nationalities drive home the point that human nature and mother nature know what's best
0: that's it for this episode of museum chat live This podcast was produced by Sarah Nixon, with special thanks to Des Koren for sharing his research and
2: knowledge. Museum Chat Live is brought to you by the St. Catharines Museum and Welland Canal Center and the City of St. Catharines.